From KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide, this is Bike Talk. Hey, Nick. Hey, Lindsay. Hey, Taylor. Hi, Taylor. Hi, Nick. Hi, Lindsay. I'm good. How are you guys? Hanging in there. The strike is over for the actors. That's always good news. Yay. (laughs) So you back to work? Well, I was going to say, I'm so glad the strike's over so I can go back to being out of work. (laughs) (laughs) That's the worst part of a strike (laughs) in the entertainment business. (laughs) Right. And you have no excuse. No excuse. You got your wife a bike, right? How's that going? Yeah, she got it. She's a big girl. She got her own bike. And we've been really enjoying it, getting out riding a lot. And we're starting now to deal with this whole issue of how do you lock your bike? And she has a step-through frame, which means it doesn't have a bar across the top. And so we looked at getting one of those big U-locks, and those don't really fit on step-through frame bikes. So I just went out and got three-quarter-inch chain from the hardware store and a master lock. And now it works great. We just wrap it around the, the seat post like we did when we were kids. And that's how we lock the bike. But I was explaining to her, in a city like Los Angeles, it's a little different in other cities, but in smaller towns also, you can just take your bike into a lot of places. And that's what I do. I just take my bike right into the hardware store or the coffee shop and just leave it there while I'm buying the chain for the bike lock or the coffee or something like that. But one thing I did notice is that when you do leave your bike without locking it, take your helmet off and tie the strap of your helmet around your tire, your wheel, and your frame so that if someone does go to get the bike, they can't just run away with it. They still have to take a second to undo the helmet, and that'll usually give you time to yell for help or something like that and to keep a thief at bay. Well, maybe that'll work. The gold standard in all locks is New York City. Yeah, if you can keep a bike in New York, you can keep a bike anywhere. Boy, that gives us a great opportunity to introduce our guest today. Yeah, did you like that? I set you up pretty well, Nick. Well, you set Shabazz up. Shabazz Stewart from Uni. Hi, guys. Uh, Hey, Shabazz. I have a lot to say about what you just said. Great. Um, I want to hear it. I want to hear it. On the street. We have two classes of what we call bike parking availabilities, right? Most of us are familiar with what we would call a class two infrastructure. This is the racks in the street. Maybe you see kind of a pole. But the thing is, class two infrastructure is really only appropriate under ideal circumstances for a couple hours, two, three, four hours max, right? Then you want to get to class one infrastructure, which is secure, right? It's weather protected, which... I guess in LA isn't really an issue, but for the rest of us in the rainier, colder, wetter United States, it's weather protected, it's access controlled, it's in a space where it may be camera monitored. So you have a much higher quality experience for the user. And in New York City, where one out of every four households, so that's about two and a half million people have experienced at least one bike theft, in order to get people riding on a regular basis You have to think about end of trip and beginning of trip secure bike parking facilities. It's the number two most commonly cited reason, lack of secure bike parking, that people don't ride bikes. And it's the most salient reason that people who bike don't bike more often. So for example, I've got, 
not me personally, but hypothetically, I have a 60-pound e-bike. I live in a brownstone in Brooklyn. I have to lug it up the stairs because I'm not leaving my $50,000 e-bike on a pole outside overnight. Well, I'm taking a trip to the supermarket and I don't feel like lugging my 60-pound e-bike down the stairs. So I'll walk or take an Uber. That's an example of a person who's already bought into the safety argument. They believe they're safe on the street riding a bike, but because it's such a hassle to use that bike because secure bike parking isn't ubiquitous, available, and plentiful, they've chosen another mode of transportation. What we need is to think about secure bike parking and charging facilities like we think about public transit. We need to think about this on a city-wide scale, right? So LA is actually, coincidentally, the most aggressive city in the country right now building fixed guideway mass transit. And the plan is to build it all over LA County. There's a Measure R, Measure M. There's a 30-year plan to build this infrastructure before the Olympics, hopefully all over the county of LA. We need a similar kind of plan with that kind of scale to put a dent in our infrastructure deficit when it comes to bike parking and charging infrastructure. So what does that look like? It looks like in New York, we have 3,500 bus shelters. We have 400 newsstands. We have 1,700 of these Lincoln YC terminals that provide free Wi-Fi. We have the 2,500 city bike stations. We need to think of that kind of scale, building that kind of vast system so that every resident of a city like New York or LA has access to high quality, secure bike parking and charging infrastructure. Ideally, that's egalitarian, inclusive, and free to use. Shabazz, how do you know so much about locking bikes? So confession, I don't actually know a ton about U-locks and locking bikes. My perspective comes from streetscape management and from urban policy. So I went to college in Boston. I learned how to ride a bike in Brooklyn where I grew up in the park. And it wasn't until I got to Boston and I started riding a bike for transportation and I kind of fell in love with it. But I was always a subway kid. I was a train kid. I don't have a driver's license. I never drove in a car in my life. Grew up in New York City. And I fell in love with, with being on a bike. I just biked all over Mass Avenue, the Broadway of Boston. I went to school in Somerville, went down to the Back Bay, would take that trip every day. And I'm like, this is great. And I thought about it in the context of public transit. Like there should be state intersections, stations. I get back to New York. I bring the same bike, Boston to New York, and there are problems, right? I don't have a place to put my bike. We live in a small apartment. In Boston, we had a little garage off campus housing, and New York didn't. So all of a sudden, I leave my bike outside. It's getting wet. I get a flat tire in the middle of the night. All the bike shops are closed. I drag it back home, right? And or I'm seeing these bikes on the street. I'm biking, and there are bikes missing tires, and there are bikes that are all stripped down. My bike like that. So I'm afraid to leave my bike outside right? My first bike gets stolen. My second bike gets stolen. And now I'm at the partnership, the downtown Brooklyn partnership, where I became deputy director of operations. And I know this is a whole thing. So I tell all the officers who work for the partnership, please keep an eye on my bike. We don't have bike parking in the office. Please, I'm going to leave it outside. Please keep my bike safe. And that lasted for about two or three months before my $1,500 road bike ends up going missing. I couldn't believe it. They made a fool out of me in my own district. And I'm saying to myself, We don't just need one or two or three bike parking facilities. Secure bike parking should be like public transit. It should be everywhere. In New York, we have 472 subway stations, right? In in the five boroughs alone, we need to think about secure bike parking being an integral part of the urban landscape so that wherever anyone rides, there's access to high quality bike infrastructure. And I'm like, why isn't any, this is like the obvious problem. Everyone talks about it, no one does anything. So let's create a system that leverages a market-based business approach. 
So we have capital to leverage where we can do a few things. We can make it easy and cheap and free for cities to implement these systems. We can make it easy, convenient, and affordable for riders to access these facilities. And we can make infrastructure that looks so good that communities welcome them, not oppose them. They embrace them, not tolerate them. And everyone said, oh, Shabazz, you're crazy. You can't do any of that, right? You have no experience. You've never started a business. This is something that people have been trying to tackle for a long time. And I'm saying they've been doing it wrong. We don't sell bike infrastructure. We're not an OEM. We don't manufacture stuff. What we do is we work with communities to build, design, customize, finance, install, and then operate the infrastructure. So we're not a Boeing We're like an American Airlines. We operate all this infrastructure in New York, but ideally in cities across the country in such a manner that is inclusive and equitable. And we've built in a venture backable business model around that. So in New York, we have advertising on the side of the units. We offer property owners convenient packages to pay for things. We do the financing and we will offer on the app a marketplace to buy products and services like if your bike loses a tire at two o'clock in the morning. And so... The idea was to systemically remove all the reasons that cities say no to this kind of infrastructure and provide a way for it to truly scale in a manner that is efficacious. So I'll I'll stop there, but that's a little bit about the approach that we take. We found that, I hate to say it, but the actual hard part of the infrastructure is not designing something that's secure. I mean, we, we didn't invent bike cage. We don't use the word bike cage, but essentially uni is an enclosure that parks bikes. You have those in LA already, right? We didn't invent that. We didn't invent access control. What we do that's different is we take on all the ancillary work that often prevents big projects from moving forward. Like who's gonna pay for it? Who's gonna operate it? Who's gonna do all the site planning? Who's working with the utilities? Cities often don't have the bandwidth to do that, certainly not on scale. And then the financing question, that's often cost prohibitive. And then who's gonna work with the communities to make sure that this is politically popular. So we do all of that stuff and then we operate the infrastructure so that it looks as good and it works as well on day 350 as it did on day one. When I asked you how you know so much about lock and bikes, I was trying to get to the fact that you started this company, Uni. And so I'm curious, how many bikes can lock at one Uni site? And how much does it cost the bike user? Okay. All right. So we built smart modular infrastructure. And if you look at our website, we don't actually have one design and one design will never work. This is what makes Uni a little bit different. We work with the top OEMs around the world and we have some of our own that we customize and build and design. And the first thing we realized was in doing this, that one size does not fit all. So we started off with this pod, an OEM, sorry, I said that chat, that popped up in the chat, is a original equipment manufacturer. A Toyota is an OEM, for example. So if you've got maybe in the bike world, Surly or Trek, those are what we would call OEMs. Those are creating infrastructures that maybe a bike shop would sell, right? So we're not an OEM. We are an operator. That's why I say we're not a Boeing, we're an American Airlines. American Airlines operates the vehicles. They don't make the planes. But what we realized was, if you think about LA, let's say I have a bike parking facility. It parks 25 bikes. It's 300 square feet. That might work in downtown LA near Union Station. It may not work in West Hollywood where the sidewalks are maybe a bit narrower, right? You may have a different design for that. So we have five modular designs that range from sort of a bike shelter, a bike share dock-like structure 
to a curbside parking structure, to much larger facilities that can go from 80 spaces to indoor designs that can go to hundreds of spaces. And the idea is that we're going to create an interoperable system that allows us to add capacity, bike parking spaces and charging spaces to any location in the city. There's never going to be a reason to say no. And so we are capacity agnostic. We can go from 10 to 500. It really depends on looking at where the opportunity is and thinking about what kind of design language can be used to add capacity to this environment. So I, I dodged your question about users. It's free to use. Our stations are free to use. And so it's a great value proposition to the user. People often squint their eyes when I say that. There's no gimmick. In thinking about how infrastructure operates in cities like New York and LA, they often use advertising. Your bus shelters have advertising. Why, if we're taking secure bike parking facilities seriously, why can't we use advertising? There's no charge to use a bus shelter. There should be no charge to use a higher quality secure bike parking facility. So in New York, we have advertising in many of our facilities, and that pays for the operating costs and it pays for the capital costs of the facility and it allows us- Wow, seriously? Um, so you can, advertising on the side, and I'm looking at your website, they're beautiful, by the way. <laughs> Unipod, Uni is the name, O-O-N-E-E. -E. And so- just an advertisement on the side of one of them pays for the whole thing? Yeah. So I don't want to make it sound simple. Getting advertising rights in cities is very complicated. It's a highly regulated space. It requires consent from the city, which we're still fighting for that with the actual city government of New York. We have these contracts, with the Port Authority, with the city of Jersey City. But yes, in a top 20 metropolitan area, if you put an advertisement, ideally a digital one, on the side of a structure, you can do three things. You can pay for the capital costs of that infrastructure. You can pay for the operating costs of that infrastructure. And you can often subsidize stations that don't have advertising on them. And so what does that look like? It looks like in New York City, our most lucrative stations are generating maybe about $250,000 a year to $300,000 a year. And not only are they paying for the upkeep, the maintenance, the, the project itself, they're also paying for other facilities in other parts of town where advertising would not be appropriate, a residential street where it wouldn't make any money and people don't want it. They're paying for that infrastructure to be free as well. And that's really, really important because in a place like New York, you don't want to be accused of being a gentrification box. People will say they're very sensitive. Why is this going here? So we want our stations to be as busy as possible and as inclusive as possible. 65% of our user base in New York is non-white. 65% of New Yorkers are non-white. 20% make below area median income. And so we're able to be something that everyone can take advantage of, not just a privileged few. And for that reason, combined with the aesthetics, combined with the fact that we're building in a feature set that people love, public art is often included, communities really embrace us. We've changed the narrative from, oh, it's not going to be an eyesore to, oh my God, this is something we really want here. And that's how in the long term we can achieve a scale proposition. Wow. And they have a lot of bike parking in places like the Netherlands, right? Yeah. In the Netherlands, people always send us videos of these massive bike parking stations in the Netherlands. It's different in a place like New York because in New York, what we need is yeah, you're going to have to have some mega facilities. So you look at the Uni Hub, it's designed to be a framework for a mega facility, but you also need to have smaller facilities dispersed across the metropolitan area, right? And so most of the time, people are not going to be experiencing 
their bike parking or charging adventure in a mega facility. They're going to be doing it an end of trip or beginning of trip, which means at home, like by your house. Here in New York, we're mostly a city of renters. And so we rely on either bike rooms in our buildings or racks on the street. You'd be doing it at home or you'd be doing it in your place of school or work. Those mega facilities are often at train stations or examples we would call intermodal transportation. Very rarely will you ever go to Union Station, right? But Union Station, of course, in LA is a beautiful cathedral, but it's like 1% of your transportation career, right? So when you think of an inclusive plan that can scale, provide different capacity value propositions for different types of sites. And Union Station had something like that for a while. It was the Bike Center, something. I think Bike Hub is the name. I think it's still there, actually. I think it's run by a great guy. And his name is Jinu um, of Transito. So the way that it has worked traditionally in America is why places like LA do relatively better than, than East Coast cities, but also why the model is broken. Typically, the way that this is handled is a park and ride proposition. We're going to finance secure bike parking when we build out a garage, for example. So with the LAMTA, you have a lot of money being expended on park and ride. And so it makes a lot of sense to build some bike lockers or even pay for a bike hub with a big transit facility. And that's also why we haven't seen bike infrastructure scale because they're only in LA, what, 85 to 100 metro stations, right? If 15 or 25% of them have secure bike parking, it's relatively rare in the context of LA County. In New York, because our train stations or subway stations don't typically have parking next to them, we don't have any next to our subway stations, actually. And so what we need to do is regionalize this approach and think about how we can have secure bike parking like we've thought about bike share, be ubiquitous and universal so everyone in the network can have access to it. Wow, this is fascinating, Shabazz. I had no idea that Uni was out there, and I'm so glad to hear about it. But Lindsay, you know Shabazz from Twitter, right? Or from X or whatever we are supposed to call it, that he's been tweeting about this craziness about having to license e-bikes. Is that right? Yes. And it's so upsetting. And Shabazz, thank you for putting this on everybody's radar. Will you share with us what's going on with this e-bike licensing? So look, we have a problem in New York. It's a problem that we have to both acknowledge it exists, but also contextualize. So we have these illegal mopeds. They are on the sidewalk. They're running red lights. They're typically used by delivery workers, but they're used by other people as well. And we have e-bikes, which are legal in New York, but are also participating in some of that same behavior. And it's emerged as this quality of life issue that, frankly, I think a lot of advocates wrestle with because we don't want to legitimize reactionaries in the car that really kill 150 plus New York pedestrians each year to the anti-bike crowd and say, ah, oh, you've got all the bikes are a problem on sidewalks. Well, you've got this problem. And there are a lot of folks who are like, okay, how do we solve this problem? What are we going to do? And a city council member by the name of Bob Holden has come up with an idea that actually isn't new. We're going to make them register with the NYC DOT, not with the DMV, but with the Department of Transportation in New York City. And they're gonna carry license plates. And I got the two confused because he's been using the two interchangeably. He's talking about licensing and registration, like they're the same thing. So they're gonna carry these license plates in his mind. And then that's gonna help with enforcement. And it's a ridiculous idea. We've seen this play out in small cities across the country, no big cities, but we know what it looks like on a small scale. The idea that a municipal department is going to create this registration division and issue license plates, it is itself kind of ridiculous. But the idea that the NYPD is going to enforce this, 
if people get their registration on their bike, PD is going to like stop you is also kind of ludicrous because the whole idea is they're enforcing traffic laws right now. So what was going to happen? The NYPD, which has happened in cities across the country have done this, is not going to enforce this in an even manner. They're going to use it as a pretext for stops. We call those pretextual stops. And they're going to happen in black and brown communities. We saw this in a viral video incident in Perth Amboy when police stopped a group of African-American kids riding their bikes. Do you have them registered? Kids said, no. Okay, off the station you go, right? That's what's going to happen. And it's going to be a massive deterrent to the biggest carbon decongestant that we have. In terms of greenhouse gas mitigators, Nothing compares to e-bikes. E-bikes make electric cars look like snails in this category. And so we're going to take all that potential and we're going to say, we're going to make it really confusing for you to use an e-bike. And if you get the backers of this bill in a room and maybe have a beer with them, they'll say, yeah, we'll deter people from buying e-bikes and getting regular bikes. So yeah, the whole thing is crazy. All it's going to do is make it really complicated to buy an e-bike and transition enforcement into a predatory scenario where black and brown communities are going to be stopped at random for riding their bikes. Where is this bill in the process? So the New York City Council is 51 CMs, right? In order to move forward, you need to get to 32 to have a hearing usually. Of course, for a vote, you need a simple majority. They are 32 co-sponsors of this bill. So it's very alarming. It started off as kind of a bill that a lot of safety advocates just didn't take seriously at 12 when it started in 18 in the summer. And then in October, people were like, uh-oh, we're at like 27, 28. And now we're at 34. We had two CMs sign off. It's a little bit alarming. There are a lot of progressives who signed onto the bill. But it's right now a majority of the city council of New York is co-sponsoring this bill. A lot of them are saying, look, it's in committee, we'll make modifications, but it is an e-bike licensing bill. The bill does nothing else but license e-bikes. I'm not really sure how you would modify a bill that's purpose is to license e-bikes. It's just a bad idea. It's a bad idea on every level. Right, and right. It's something that is really amazing that we're having a conversation about the 21st century. Well, thanks for sharing that with us, because I wasn't aware that that was going on in New York. And I think we want to nip that in the bud as fast as possible. Yeah, thanks, Shabazz, for coming on. What's the likelihood of it passing? Do you know? So so at 34, you need a hearing, and we'll see if we get there. We've been pushing people away. We were at 34, now we're at 32. So it really depends on if it needs a hearing or not, what the committee chooses to do. I think at some point, we'll get to a vote in the bill. And there are a couple of things that could happen. The mayor could veto, which is typically what would have happened in the past. The city council speaker could basically not bring it to a vote. We could have it lose on the vote because there are some things that people can't vote for. We'll see. But this is something right now that I think advocates across the country should be taking very seriously. Absolutely. New York is a relatively big city that a lot of cities look towards for policy. If New York falls, then other reactionary cities across the country might follow. Yeah. Well, keep us posted on that. And I'm so glad you came on and talked about Uni. And I'll look for it next time I'm in New York to park my bike. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm looking forward to continuing the conversation. Great to see you. Nick, you were at the Golden Spike. Tell me what that is. The Golden Spike is a conference of I guess you'd call them rail trail activists in Massachusetts. 
And it was put together by Craig De La Pena, who has been the rail trail warrior. He's been working on getting a 104-mile connected, protected rail trail that goes across Massachusetts. And we had these breakout sessions during the conference. And I asked Craig to recreate one of the sessions. It was about a report they did. They hired an outside agency to find out what the value of this trail would be to the state of Massachusetts. It was estimated at $200 million. Wow. How to get leaders to act on that and get the missing pieces of the rail trail put in. Great. So that's what this is. This is a breakout session from the Golden Spike event about rails to trails. And here it is. Craig Delapena, the Rail Trail Warrior. My name is Craig Delapena, and with this role today, I'm the chair of a group, a 501c3 operational in Massachusetts called Nawatic Network to do betterments along a trail called the Nawatic Rail Trail. And we've expanded in the last few years to look at expanding and helping build out the longest rail to trail project in New England. And I have two of my board members here, Glenn Pransky and Charlene Nabuline, and George Kohout, who is the president of Friends of Northampton Trails. This past summer, Nawatic Network commissioned a report that came out and suggested if the trail gets finished, it will produce $200 million a year to the Commonwealth and the communities along the way, intersect with 18 other shared use paths, and it's going to have two-thirds of the state's population, or almost two-thirds, within 10 miles of this corridor. There is nothing else like this in North America. This connects into the densest network of dead steam railroad corridor in North America. There's a degree of leadership that we see in other places that once the key decider, usually the governor, makes a decision to build the, we're not talking small little trails here, we're talking this trail that will be an iconic memorable experience for people, a long trail. And I can think of the Katy Trail where John Ashcroft years ago when he was the governor in Missouri, he green-lighted the build-out of the Katy Trail, 250 miles. And more recently in New York, we saw that Governor Cuomo, when he was handed a report showing similar numbers like our report about the Mass Central, when the Erie Canal Trail report came out showing was big numbers, he commanded DOT to build another 400 miles of bike trails, shared use paths in New York and creating what is called today the Empire State Trail. What do you guys think about how are we going to get that sort of key decision made here? It seems like to us a no-brainer but it doesn't seem like we've actually made an impact yet. How do you think that we could make an impact here? Speaking as a journalist, I think we need to get the story out. It's a compelling story. It's a data-based story. If we've learned anything, metrics does move and shake things. So when leadership looks at the report that the NOAA Network commissioned, they look at the economic impact the shared path impact, the health impact, the climate impact. We could go on and on about the report. When they look at those metrics, they have to act, not out of compulsion, but out of necessity, because this is a necessity. So I think getting our story out and getting local papers to report this. I don't know why this isn't one of the biggest stories, because it is. So I think it's on all of us to pitch it, keep pitching it and the more it's told, the more our leaders will pay attention because they can't ignore the numbers. Glenn. 
I look at success elsewhere. It was built upon engaging mayors of towns along a corridor, getting state senators and representatives to enthusiastically join a rail caucus and talk in a coherent way about how this would benefit a number of communities and just keep the pressure going. I'm just thinking about the Virginia Capitol Trail and how that got done. And a lot of these trails had influential people who weren't part of the state legislator behind them, who raised money, who got frequently other business people to say, hey, this is how we invest in our communities. This is a way that we can really improve many dimensions of our community. And the example I always like to use is Dunedin, Florida, which in the 60s was a CSX dumping ground on an almost abandoned spur of a north-south railway, 60% downtown occupancy. And now with the Pinellas Rail Trail going through it, which is something that the state legislators in that part of the state tirelessly advocated for. They've got a vibrant town that has over 90% storefront occupancy. People have forgotten what it used to be like 40 years ago, which is a good thing, but that happened through consistent advocacy. It wasn't easy. The legislators in those affected cities and towns got together and said, let's make this a priority. George. Both Charlene and Glenn are right on target with this. And I would say even more, it is a local kind of initiative that we all need to help. I think we need to talk to the Chamber of Commerces here in our town, do a little presentation with them. I think the private sector that benefits, whether it's bike shops or restaurants or tourist areas, they really need to understand too, what the positive impact could be for such a thing. Then they, in turn, push that story up the chain, so to speak, for when the governor comes by or other secretaries come by, they have those talking points from us to kind of help them to see the regional and local impact of what a consistent rail trail would bring. Tell us about the downtown remake, the big controversial subject of remaking downtown to be more friendly to bikes and pedestrians. It's downtown Northampton, which is already pretty friendly, but tell us a little bit about that. Northampton has a very wide New England kind of a boulevard. And unfortunately, what has happened over time, it's become a very dangerous street, both for autoists and pedestrians and bicyclists, because the wideness allows cars to drive faster. Pedestrians have too long of a crosswalk to walk over. Two lanes of traffic in both ways, as you know, could be dangerous for pedestrians. One car stops, the other doesn't. The data showed that this main street was the most accidents for that given section of street in the state. It ranked in the top five, so to speak. So they spent some time working with consultants to come up with a design to narrow the main street to one lane in both directions with a middle turning lane and to add bicycle lanes on each side to make it more amenable to people who are pedestrians and bicyclists and who have mobility issues also. This is going out to bid through the Department of Transportation, but it's facing pushback from local businesses who we know want to see parking right in front of their store. This reduction of the travel lanes will also reduce parking by about 20% on the main street. 
This has been done in many towns. And after it's been done and the construction's over, there's data that shows there's an uptick in the economic performance of the stores because people are feel more confident walking and traveling downtown. But it comes at a tough time, too. All businesses suffered during COVID, especially in a small city like Northampton. Many of them are mom and pop shops, so to speak. So they took a big hit. It is the way of the future, as we see also in Europe. More pedestrians, more bicyclists, whether it's e-bikes or not, more public transportation, and less individual car trips. And again, just a huge selling point for our carbon reduction goals. Let's get people out of cars, especially single occupancy cars, and get them in other kinds of transportation. So it's going to be a bit of a haul still here in Northampton to get this done, but I think it's going to pass through. And within three to four years, we'll have a much safer downtown Northampton and a bustling downtown. Whether we get to 90%, Glenn, like Dunedin, Florida, I'm not sure, but they've got other things going for it than we do in cold New England. Thanks, George. How can we evolve the Nordic Network to become more helpful to build out this iconic 100-mile trail? Education is key. Reaching out to those towns that think that taking this on might be biting off more than they can chew. Giving them examples and showing them how successful other towns have been. There was so much pushback in Sudbury and how that has gone. And just really educating them on, the first of all, the resources, the grants that they can get the advocacy work that Nowatak has done and how successful we've been, that would help. I think each community is different. Having maybe town hall meetings and listening sessions, what do you think are your biggest obstacles and how can we come alongside you to get this done? Thanks, Charlene. Go ahead. It's about engagement. It would be ideal if we had the mayors and select boards and town managers of each town along the Mass Central saying this is a priority and let them tell us what they would need to get their section done. We can help them with grant writing, engaging the Chamber of Commerce in each of these places in a positive way could be very helpful because like what's happened in other places, we might find the one owner of an auto dealership or a restaurant who's really well connected politically could say, this is a great idea and I'll help carry this forward. I'll make sure that our state rep understands that this is a priority. If we can succeed with that along our corridor, and Craig, I want to also mention that we have all these important other trails that intersect that would benefit as well from a completed mass central. So think about, for example, how a completed mass central will provide more tourists and more economic opportunities for Concord, for Framingham, for Chelmsford, other towns. I think it's a matter of really getting engagement at a local level and building that up. Thanks, Clint. That's great. George, any thoughts on that from you? To piggyback on Charlene, I think it's education that the Neurotic Network can continue to have resources on its website so we can point people, private sector people, public, to the data that exists at that website. Go to Norwatic.com or whatever, and there's everything you'll need there, maps and graphs and studies. I think that would be a real bonus too. Okay. The name of our website is NN Network. That'll be three ends together, nnnetwork.net. That will bring you to the website for the Nowatic Network, 
And on there is the report, a one-page executive summary. And actually, if you scroll to the bottom, you'll see every report ever written about the idea of having a 100-mile rail trail across Massachusetts. And if you'd like to subscribe to our e-newsletter, drop me an email, craigdp413 at gmail.com. And I'll subscribe you. And we're going to be launching another website later this fall called Finish therailtrail.org. And we're going to have a way for you to get the state to commit to finishing this 100-mile trail. Thanks, George. And thanks, everyone here. Hope you had a good time. Well, that was great, Nick. It seems to me like we're finally getting some data about how these rail trails and bike lanes affect different communities. Communities that were drying up all of a sudden start to do better and tax revenues go up when a rail trail is nearby or a protected bike lane is nearby. Yeah, they're able to monetize it. They can say $200 million to Massachusetts if you finish this 104-mile trail. The question is, is the data alone enough? Right. Well, that's why they mentioned education. You have to tell people what it's going to mean to them. And you have to get political leaders on board. You just have to keep reaching out to them and keep telling them. It's a hard hurdle to get over at first because nobody wants to lose one parking place ever. But once you do, there's an upside on the back end. Well, in this case, it's not parking, but you have to build a couple bridges. What I like about it is it's 104 miles. It's not 20 miles or 10 miles. This is really going to connect different communities of people. Yeah. And people will be taking these trips that take several days and staying along the way and they'll be on bikes. And so they'll need to resupply. Eat in restaurants, stay in hotels, drink in bars. Yep. I mean, I'm going to do it for sure. I always like starting my rides in the morning with a coffee and ending my rides with a beer. Is that just for rides or is that just every day? No, that's just for rides. Well, this is definitely something that we will be following and keeping up with. I guess you need a visionary leader. You know, there's Mayor Wu in Boston. She's supposed to be amazing. And Hildago in Paris, Jeanette Sadik Khan in New York, the bike mayor in Emeryville, California. John Bowders, yeah, America's bike mayor. Right. Well, we have a great Secretary of Transportation in the United States. Yeah, I would like Pete to come on the show. I sent him an email. Did you get an answer or not? Not yet. I asked John Bowders to pull some strings. Anyway, Massachusetts Central Rail Trail. Next up, another story from Massachusetts. It's a cyclocross event. One of the biggest cyclocross events in the country is in the town of Northampton. I love cyclocross. I don't know if many people know exactly what it is, but it's riding off-road over tree branches and up and down steep hills, and it's really fun to watch. And it's fun for kids, too. It also just builds really good biking skills. You're getting on and off the bike. You're riding over difficult terrain. It's a wonderful thing for kids. I had my daughter go and she competed in a race and her mom interviewed her after, her and her friend. Oh, all right. How'd she do? She got the cookie. (laughs) Tell me about the race. What did you do? My best part was going around the over there. There were some really high boards over there. Oh, yeah. And then they switched them to just flat ones. 
Oh, but yeah? And I had to lift my bike, and I couldn't even get over them very fast. Wait, so like the big ones, or like the... The ones over there, the big ones over there. Like, the, when they were up, right? Uh, yeah. Over there. I don't know. Those are big ones. Are you proud of yourselves for completing the race? What do you say to each other? Great job, friend. <laughs> so yeah that was my daughter and her friend and then i talked to tom and adam tom is is a youth program coordinator at the northampton cycling club and adam myerson is the person who started the event and here's interviews with them we're at the Northampton Cycle Smart Cycle Cross Race. This is Tom Hogendyke, Northampton Cycling Club Youth Programs Coordinator. And you were in charge of the kids' races. Yeah, we do kids' races every year. We've been doing it for over a decade. It's kids all the way down to, we had a one and a half year old today. Oh, wow. So what's that like, watching kids this young do cyclocross? Oh, it's wonderful. They're just so happy when they're out there. They're just having such a great time. That's what we want it to be. We want cycling to be something that's fun that the kids can do. When the kids are on the start line, I always try to remind them that on the big course where the pros ride, that there are barriers, there's different obstacles that they have to get up and over. We don't have sand on the kids' course, so I don't mention sand, but we do have uh, two-by-fours laying flat. We have two-by-fours standing up, and we have barriers that are almost full height for the kids six years and older. And then we put out hay bales because it's really fun to try and get your bike over a hay bale. <laughs> The weight of your average kid's bike is as much as some of these kids weigh themselves. And so we're really mindful of whether or not it would be fun for them to try and drag their bike up over an obstacle. So this is somebody on the stationary bike training. This is Ellen Noble, who's like a champion, right? That's right. Yeah, Ellen Noble is warming up on the rollers right now. She's also one of our volunteer youth coaches. She rides with the kids all the time, and she has since the beginning. She's come out and ridden with the kids when she was first starting out before her first national championship. Wow, maybe we'll get to talk to her. She seems a little busy getting ready for the race, though. Yeah, <laughs> a little busy right now. In the fall, we have a cyclocross race team, also called the Trail Blasters, and they were here today. When we're working with kids and they develop these skills on the bike, the experience of not being able to do something, working to learn how to do that, and then feeling that achievement, it builds confidence for kids. And the idea isn't to produce the next you know, national champ. The idea is to keep these kids on bikes so they're doing something that they enjoy, they're doing it with friends, and ultimately I'd like to see that confidence translate into the rest of their lives in school or any other activities that they're doing so that they can build that confidence. So that's what it's about for me. And here's the person who's been behind the event since it started, Adam Meyerson. My name is Adam Meyerson, and I'm the event president. I'm the race organizer. First edition of the race for me was 1991, when I was 19 years old, sophomore at UMass, and I was part of the UMass Bicycle Racing Club. They had a, I would call it a mediocre mountain bike race up at Orchard Hill, and I volunteered to take the race over for the club as a service to the club, and I turned it into a cyclocross race. And here we are, 32 years later. 33 years later because we had a year off for COVID. So 32 editions in 33 years. Amazing. I was kind of surprised to find out that we have such a big event here in Northampton. Yeah. You know, it's a small town, but you have some of the world's top talent. 
Yeah, I would say if there's a weak point in our organization, despite having been here for as long as we have, is bridging that gap between being focused on the racers and the participants to getting the local community, non-bike racers, families, to recognize that we have a free sports event with food trucks and a kids race. And of course, the Northampton Cycling Club has done such a good job with the kids race that you don't have to be a bike racer if you have a kid with a bicycle. We put this race on to be of service to the cycling community because we love bike racing. I came out here to go to school and like many people, I fell in love with the Valley and didn't want to leave. And I've been back in Boston now longer than I lived in the Valley, which is really a bummer. But now I have an eight-year-old who's here racing and he's been here for every edition of the race. And you're racing today. I am going to race. My racing age is 52 now. I'm sort of just on the edge of still being able to participate in the elite race. When we were an internationally sanctioned race, for years I did race in the elite race. But once I turned 50, I started doing the master's race and I stopped doing the elite category. And now this year, we stepped down from being internationally sanctioned because they decided that trans women were not welcome in their category and that was unacceptable for us. It was more important for us that people who have always been welcome in our event would continue to be welcome here and so they changed the rules and so we said no thanks we'll we'll do our own thing. And you can see like just feels normal here. It's Northampton. What else would we do right? But that allows me to jump back into the quote-unquote elite race and just ride around in the middle of the field and see what I can do against those guys. I'm the 50 plus national champion. So I like to race the highest level of competition available to me, which helps me be prepared for the big masters races. There's sort of two very important masters races and it's Pan Am championships, national championships. I've been the Pan Am champion twice. I didn't go this year just to, life gets in the way of doing those kinds of trips, but I'm very focused on 50 plus nationals in Louisville, which is in about four weeks. And hopefully I can defend the jersey in Louisville. Wow, amazing. So do you want to speak at all about how being at your level in cyclocross would compare to being at that level in like road? Sure. Well, I was a pro for 13 years. I punched the clock as a pro. I wasn't the best guy out there, but I was good enough to get a job every year and generally be like the most experienced guy on my team. And that's what I would get hired for, be a road captain for younger riders. And that ties in with being a coach. So I was always a division three pro. And I think it's sort of the equivalent of playing like AAA baseball. You make a good living and you're a professional. There's a couple zeros missing from your salary. For me, it was enough to like, I bought a house, but I didn't get Lance Armstrong rich, if you know what I mean. Good enough to be out there, not the best guy out there. Crafty though, student of the sport, make the most of the talents I have. Do you find that people don't know so much about cyclocross and you have to explain it to them? I am always surprised at how much people know about it. If I do have to explain it, I'll use like, it's like cross country running is an analogy I'll use, or I'll say it's like road racing on the grass, grass road racing. But if they understand cross country running, and I say, imagine that on road bikes, I think that is a helpful image for people. As gravel gets more popular and people kind of know what gravel is, we could call it like short track gravel which I don't love saying, but I think it helps people understand what the sport is. It's a mile and a half long loop and you can stand in one spot and watch most of the race from one spot and the riders are going fast and they're in packs and it's it's really a very spectator friendly sport. It keeps coming back to kids when I talk to people about this. It's amazing, yeah. I mean, 
I can remember when I realized we had created a family-friendly environment. I didn't have one of those, and I was very focused on the racing. But the venue lends itself. I'm at the point with my own child where I can let him loose here, and he is looked after. I don't need to know exactly where he is. Like I said, he's eight. All parents know when they get to that point where they can let their kid roam a little bit. And so a lot of the cyclocross events are that kind of place where it's safe and it's contained and there's a limit to where they can go. But the kids all know each other and they make friends so fast and they're just playing in the grass on bikes. It's a great place to hang out for the day. What we're seeing is a lot of growth in the kids' race too. Like pandemic put a big dent in participation and now you're seeing like huge kids' races. In my kids' under 15 category race, there were 38 kids. They've never had that before. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah, so that's very encouraging. So it's the sport of the future. <laughs> I mean, kickboxing has come and gone, right? Let's call cyclocross the sport of the future, yeah. Um, <laughs> Hope everybody gets that joke. Oh, you want to explain it? That Got quote it. is from the movie Say yeah. Anything. Well, thank you for explaining Yeah, yeah no problem. Yeah, so, well, you're doing more for this sport than probably anybody else. I would never make that claim, but I don't like to talk shit without backing it up. And so if I can see that there's a way to improve something or I want it to go a different way, I've always been someone to just do that work. I can't help myself, it's a compulsion. I had a zine in high school, I was part of the 80s punk scene, and so like a lot of what drives what we're doing right now, believe it or not, are 80s DIY punk values where you contribute to your community, you make things better, you don't just complain, you have an idea that things can be better, and so that's how I approach it. Yeah. Good luck in your race today. Thank you, I appreciate it. Thanks for the attention. I used to race bikes a long time ago, but I think maybe getting back into cyclocross would be really fun. Wow, so you'll be doing every kind of biking then, road, mountain, <laughs> gravel, and cyclocross? And cyclocross, all on the same bike. <laughs> You just change the tires. Just change the wheels, right? Well, good show. Yeah. Today. Remember, if you like the show, pass it on to your friends. Let other people know about Bike Talk. If you have a question or a comment, let us know at biketalk.org. And like us on social media. It really does help us spread the word. We're trying to talk about safe streets, bicycle infrastructure, keeping your bike safe. Let other people know if you like it. Yeah, it's at biketalk.org and all the podcasts. All right, Taylor, can you take us out with a bike quote? I think I can. This is from Arthur Doyle. When the spirits are low, when the day appears dark, when work becomes monotonous, when hope hardly seems worth having, just mount a bicycle and go out for a spin down the road without a thought on anything but the ride you are taking. Hi. This is Stacy with a bike thought. This may sound odd coming from an all audio show, but one of the best things you can do to help the cause is take photos and share them. A bike that you like, a rider with an awesome helmet, the accessory or accoutrement that you think is supreme, or maybe photos. When you see lanes or streets and even highways that are closed to cars for festivals, parades, construction, and somehow the world still keeps spinning. Good job photos. When a city has proper bikeway finding, proper protection in addition to fresh green paint, secure bike parking, and most definitely when you see a design that works for young and old, a kid learning to ride, a couple on a bike date, someone hauling furniture, or a bike with flowers, lights, a ton of flair, take a picture. 
share them with your friends, and send a copy to sharebikepix at gmail.com. We'll organize them and make them accessible so we can all share the love. This episode of Bike Talk is sponsored by the law offices of Pokras and De Los Reyes, with offices in Los Angeles and Bakersfield, and serving all of Southern California. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat. Put your feet on the pedals and ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat. Put your feet on the pedals and ride it all around, ride it all around. Oh, catch yourself a bike.